Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Julius Baer podcast. This is Richard Tang, the China strategist and head of research Hong Kong for Bank Julius Baer. It's the beginning of the month and it's time again for our monthly conversation with Grow. Let me welcome Hong Hao back to our podcast to discuss China and Hao is currently the partner and chief economist of Grow. Hi, Hao. Thank you very much for your time speaking with us today. Hi, Richard. Great to be here. Before we start, I do want to take the opportunity to show our appreciation to you joining our Market Outlook seminar on June 15th. We had a great discussion on the China Macro Outlook and our audience really appreciates your insight. So thank you very much. In this monthly podcast, I plan to drill into some of the topics from our seminar a little bit further, and then we can discuss some new developments in the Chinese economy and the Chinese market over the recent two weeks. Let's get straight into the conversation. We recently had the release of the tourism statistics of the Dragon Boat Festival holidays. If we compare them to 2019, before the COVID, what we found is that visitation during the holidays has increased by 13%, but tourism revenue is still 5% lower than that in 2019. This set of numbers does seem to be slightly weaker than the Labor Day holidays. Also, if you look at the average spending per trip, it was about 16% lower than that in 2019, which means either the intention to spend has become weaker or the purchasing power has become weaker. Now, you know, tourism is already the stronger part of the broader Chinese consumption and the Chinese consumption has not really improved much after reopening. Not to mention about revenge spending, it simply didn't happen. But the interesting bit is that Chinese household deposit has increased a lot. Last year, they added 18 trillion RMB into the banking system. This year, another 10 trillion. So why are not people spending at least some of their deposits on, let's say, buying goods and services? Consumption is a brighter part of the Chinese economy, even though it's still below the pre-pandemic level. I think even for Western economies, it takes about over a year for households to get back to the level where they were before the pandemic. So because after all, it's three very, very long years for many people, even though that is still below pre-pandemic level. But comparing with the last few years, we're showing a significant improvement in terms of people's spending and also people's sentiment. In terms of where the household spending is going to go from here, it would also take some time for the households to adjust this spending pattern. You know, after all, in the past few years, the mentality really is to save as hard as possible for rainy days. And also on top of that, the Chinese value really is to save as hard as possible for the rainy days, right? So this part of the traditional Chinese value. So as a result, one shouldn't be too surprised to see straight savings gone up substantially, people are spending less, simply because people's spending behavior has changed because of the pandemic. But going forward, we will see that people gradually readjust to the new environment, roads start to stabilize and come back, and then that way, it gives people more confidence to spend. But let's say if we look back a little bit further, let's say just past 5 to 10 years, policymakers have always wanted to raise the consumption share of the economy. I'm not saying there is no progress at all. I think there is definitely some good progress. But now China consumption is still less than half of the economy, whereas in the U.S., the same number is 70%. Or put it this way, it's still considerably lower than what an economist or an investor would have expected. So it does look like this rebalancing process of the economy is a bit slow, a bit challenging. So how, what do you think is the reason for such a slow progress? And did we miss something? Well, it's been 
well over 10 years, well over a decade since we've tried to re-engineer the growth engine. But in every time we run into trouble, we try to stimulate again. And the easiest way to stimulate your way out of trouble is to do investment. So as you can see, like in many parts of China, we're in trouble too. The infrastructure is just phenomenal. So it's world-class. And we always hear the Chinese people joke at the U.S. subway system and also the broken down highways interstate. In China, even at the most remote area where few people travel to, you have A lanes of high-speed road system where you can actually do car racing. It's just phenomenal. So in, in a way, you know, many of these regions has already spent well ahead of their time. So they spend the next 10, 20 years of infrastructure spending in the past 10 years. As a result, you can see there's a huge mismatch between the level of infrastructure development and the economic development in those regions. So I would say that now we get to a point where the Chinese economy has been spending 40 to 50% of its GDP on investment. It has never happened in human history. Someone come close to South Korea when the South Korea economy trying to take off, spend about 10 years of time spending close to 50% of GDP on investments. And that's pretty much it. And 10 years is as long as it can get. And China has spent like almost 30 years doing this. It's just phenomenal. So I would say that you know now we're at a point, obviously it's unsustainable. You can't just keep spending 50% of your GDP on investment-driven growth. It's obviously unsustainable. So I think as a result, you know, we got to a point where it's very, very difficult, very challenging to spend that kind of money to continue to stimulate growth. And then on top of that, because when you're doing too much investment, you're actually suppressing the household representation, the overall economic structure. So I think as a result, if you look at the Chinese household, percentage of spending as a percentage of GDP is less than 40%. So that means that it gets to a point where something has to change and it cannot be the old model keep going forward. So it looks like we're talking about some structural forces having to change before we see what we want to see. One thing that we just talked about is the massive amount of deposit in the system. And I think one related question to this is, why do we have a massive amount, a large stock of deposit money, but the stock market still fail to go up. When it comes to predicting the stock market, my own framework is very simple. Most of the time, I only focus on two factors. One is whether the growth is becoming better. On this front, I think we all agree that we're still waiting for some concrete signs of recovery in the economy. And then the other one is liquidity. Now, this is where things don't seem to fall into place, because I actually think that we have fairly abundant liquidity in the system right now. We just talked about the 18 trillion RMB of deposit last year, and then another 10 trillion year to date. Or if we look at the broader definition of money, which is M2, it has been growing at around double digit most of the time. So I think this does check the box of liquidity easing. So are there any hiccups or challenges in the transmission mechanism so that we have the money, but the stock market still doesn't go up? I think it pays to see like uh, where the savings are coming from. So obviously, if you look at the macro data in the Chinese economy now, M2 is going up 12-30% year on year. But at the same time, deposits as part of M2 is going very strongly. It's almost like hand-in-hand hand with M2 growth. And then if you also look at the trade surplus, it's also record high. It's reaching a historic high level. So what that means is that you're exporting Chinese products and then take the foreign savings into the Chinese system and therefore the corporate savings. Uh, keep going up. So in the banking system, on one hand, you have your savings, which is the liability for banks, but then at the same time, 
the asset, which is uh, represented as a household savings or corporate savings, uh, is going up as well. So corporate saving in this way, even though the household saving is up, but also the co- most of the savings going up is coming from corporate. Corporate savings going up uh, means that the macro liquidity might be increasing, but then at the same time, the corporate savings or the corporate liquidities are not likely to go into the stock market to buy stocks. So I think that explains in part some of the questions that we have. On one hand, we have surging M2. M2 is surging is because deposit is surging, and deposit is surging because trade surplus is surging. At the same time, because it's mostly corporate savings, it's unlikely to go into the stock market to buy stocks. Gotcha. Well, regarding the Chinese market, I think one interesting observation is that it does look like institutional investors are selling Chinese equities and buying Japanese equities especially in May and the first half of June. So all of a sudden, many people are asking us what we think about Japan. The Japanese market has long been forgotten until Warren Buffett disclosed that, oh, I'm raising my stakes in five Japanese trading companies. And then that triggers global investors to rethink, oh, whether Japanese equities may now offer a little bit of value. Now, at Jules Bear, these are what we think about Japan. Warren Buffett seems to be buying Japanese equities, but we see him as buying five Japanese companies that are good at making money because almost all these five trading companies earn an ROE north of 20%, whereas the ROE of the broader Japanese market is only eight. So I tend to think that there may be more fundamental reason than pure valuation reason behind those moves. The other thing that draws people's attention right now is obviously the reform of the Tokyo Stock Exchange because it requires Japanese companies that are trading less than one time spoke to come up with plans to improve shareholder returns and hopefully the stock valuation. Now, indeed, we are seeing a sudden surge in share buyback in Japan over the past two months. And then at the same time, a large amount of foreign money attracted into the Japanese market, possibly after selling the Chinese market. So overall, we do see some opportunities in Japan, although we think that the bets are probably better with individual quality companies in the market. Now, I know different people will have very different view on the Japanese market. So I'm very curious, how, what are your own thoughts on Japan? I don't have a very strong view on Japan. I mean, even though the market is going up, it's good for them. I think when we're doing global allocation, well, when we do research on global markets, Japan is always HX, right? So it's HX, Japan, MSCI, and then Japan, MSCI. In a way, I don't see myself as a Japanese expert, but then at the same time, the, the Japanese market is going up because the Japanese economic structure has changed in some fundamental way. For example, women's labor participation rate has been increased. So it's a new source of productivity improvement for that economy. And then also for the past 20 to 30 years, the absolute level of Japanese GDP hasn't gone down. So it's quite phenomenal. And the Japanese economy has been spending much of its money on overseas investments. So I think when it comes to these two years, we're seeing a significant devaluation of Japanese yen. So what that means is that your foreign holding actually increased substantially in value, but not only because you invest in some of the high-tech companies in the U.S. market, but also because of the U.S. dollar appreciation, especially relative to the Japanese yen. Therefore, your foreign investment holdings actually surge in value. So I think as a result, it's being reflected in the Japanese market performance. I think the Japanese market has been going very strongly. The consensus is highly bullish towards this market. So from a contrarian point of view, there has to be a short-term correction. So before it moves substantially higher from here. But I think from a, a trading longer-term perspective, normally we buy things when it makes new high. So longer term, we are positive as the rest of the market. But then in the near term, I think the market has been running hard and fast. So there's bound to be some sort of correction in the near term. 
Gotcha. So I guess how you're a little bit mindful of uh, imminent drawdowns. The last topic before we close is the RMB. How I remember when we first had this podcast, you mentioned that the difference between the PBOC fixing of the RMB and also the market levels actually predicts or at least reveals the sentiment in the stock market. And indeed, in the past week, we did have a couple of days of deliberately stronger fixings by the PBOC than the market implied. And then the stock market did seem to stabilize a little bit, at least for a few days. So can you refresh your memory how we use this symbol to understand market sentiment? Or what do you think about the RMB or anything that you think would be interesting to share with us? I think the yuan has been a focal point of the market recently. The reason being in the overseas, in the offshore RMB market, the size is relatively small. It's like less than a trillion yuan and versus 280 trillion yuan in the domestic market. So we're talking about a fraction of the RMB is being traded offshore. But then because the market is so small and also currency is a leverage bet, and therefore, the movement tend to be still from outside, like what it's doing now. So I think the central bank, after the 2015 currency reform, the central bank is less willing to intervene in the market directly. So back then, the central bank can jerk up the overnight borrowing rate. It can ask the state bank or Hong Kong market to start buying offshore Chinese yuan to shore up the currency, etc., etc. But this time, we're not seeing the kind of outright blatant market intervention from the central bank, so which is good. So we're letting the market determine where the Chinese currency is going. But then at the same time, if we look at the currency movement from an impossible trinity point of view, we're saying the Chinese monetary policy choice seems to be rather independent, especially in the past few years, it's been diverging from the U.S. So I think as a result, we can say that the Chinese monetary choice, monetary policy choice is independent. And then at the same time, just now we discussed how the central bank is letting the market determine where the Chinese yuan is going. And therefore, the currency exchange rate is largely market-driven. So then what's left is the cross-border capital flow. That part has to be where we're, the sort of the challenge that we're facing right now is that is there seems to be very large cross-border capital flow between onshore and offshore markets. So I think last night we'll see the SAFE, which is the State Administration of Foreign Exchange, and actually announced a list of punishments for many of the Chinese entities that, well, that have been using illegal means to send money, to send U.S. dollars from offshore market to offshore market. So when the currency rate is going down, that means that someone in the market is selling. So they're selling Chinese yuan for U.S. dollars, for example. So I think I would be surprised to see many of these entities are involved in this cross-border transaction where they're selling down the Chinese yuan to create pressure on the currency rate, and therefore they are being punished. And then at the same time, in recent months, we've seen news announcement came out of China doing RMB-based settlement with Argentina, with Russia, with Arab countries regarding the Chinese imports of oil and agriculture produce. So when there are stories going around saying that when these countries, they receive the Chinese yuan, they actually dump it on, on the foreign market for U.S. dollars, especially for an actor such as Russia, for example, they have no access to U.S. dollars, so they can use the Chinese yuan as an intermediate step to get to the U.S. dollar reserve. And for Argentina, because the Argentinian peso has devalued substantially over the past couple of years, and therefore, by using the Chinese yuan in the overseas market in exchange for U.S. dollars, actually replenish 
the Argentinian Forest Reserve, etc., etc. So there are like many stories going around, but one thing is for sure, you know, there's significant cross-border capital flow, and also there are people who are selling the Chinese yuan in the international markets. That's indeed very interesting dynamics. All right, that's pretty much all we have to talk today. Thank you very much, Hao, for your sharing. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next podcast. Goodbye. Speak soon. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Bayer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbayer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbayer.com slash legal slash podcast for further important legal information.